1: Welcome to Mind Rolling. Glad you're back. I'm David Silver with my dear partner, Raga Marcus. Raga, would you introduce our very special guest? Surya Das is back. Surya Das is back. Yes. Lama Surya, Surya Das if you don't mind.
2: Lama Surya Das is back. And Lama is, is an old, old, old friend. And uh, we have so much in common. We have love in common, basically. I mean Surya and I we just got on Skype together and we haven't seen each other for a while. We caught up a little bit before we we're going to do this podcast. And you know it's the Surya it lama it is the it is what Larry said. Larry Dr. Larry Brilliant said when I was sitting with Maharaji. He loved me unconditionally. I expected that. He was a saint. But when I realized that I loved everybody around me, that was a miracle, you know, and that miracle is the reality of what we just see each other for a second. And, and, you know, it's all present. Pretty amazing.
0: It is a miracle. And I think that's the miracle of his presence, really, not just the the him, the human him. No, exactly. That spirit among us, that love, that connection among us, not just looking up at one God or one guru or one saint.
2: Right, exactly.
0: Right, I, I, thou, and all
2: that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, Lama's been here before everybody, and uh, is an incredible uh, Buddhist teacher, and uh, he has done an extraordinary amount of practice to substantiate the presence that he is when, uh, when, whenever we see each other, and uh, and and some great books. Uh, you know, uh, Surya, give what's your favorite book of all the books you've written?
0: Well, my big, popular bestseller is Awakening the Buddha Within. Right. And the Awakening trilogy that came after that. But my favorite one is the first one I wrote, The Snow Lions, Turquoise Mane, One oh, Hundred and Fifty yeah. Wisdom Tales from Tibet. Oh
2: teaching yeah. Teaching
0: tales told by lamas that I collected and translated and rewrote.
2: I love that, that book. That's my favorite one. Uh, that's really great um, and now I'm going to throw Dave are you going to yeah. be mad at me for this or no do no, I'll do it I'll do Okay, it you yeah. d- we have to do this one thing Sir. Uh, uh, sorry
1: we've been told that we've got to do commercials at the beginning or people don't listen so you can get Lama Suryadas' great works and they are on Amazon of course and we have a, an affiliation with Amazon so if you get them through our portal on mindrollingpodcast.com uh, we get a small percentage keeps us going it's great support and it feels good our other sponsor is audible.com and that's where you get the audiobooks of these great teachers and and writers and novelists and everybody else. Wait, uh, does
2: Lama, do you have uh, uh, your books being read for audible.com?
0: Um yes, my books are in all kinds of forms. I've read some, other people have read them. They're there, they're on uh, iTunes, they're around.
2: Okay, but specifically Audible? Uh it sounds like that we're not quite sure which ones, maybe all of them, but you would be able to buy Lama Surya Das's books on Audible dot com so that you can listen to them in your car or when you're working or whatever you're doing, alongside of this podcast. <laughs> right. right? Right.
0: Yes, we're all we're all working to make these things available since sharing is what we do.
2: Exactly that. Exactly and so much that. was
0: shared with us, so we like yep. pay, paying it forward.
2: And that is that's really what this what we love to do. And Dave and I, you know, started mind rolling just on that basis, nothing else and nothing more. Dave, uh, I'm passing it over to you.
1: Yeah, because we, we we've been looking at this piece you wrote, uh, which is called "Reconciling the Gap," and it fits in so much with our recent podcast, actually, when we've been talking about the um, trying to dissipate anger. Against those that you think you don't like, <laughs> politically, personally, whatever, and what you write about in this, and I'm I'm not going to quote you because I, you know, I'd much rather you did talked about it, uh, but it is about this incredible polarization that has gone on on every level in every place uh, in in the recent times, and w- you know people are very freaked by it, and what you do in this piece skillfully I might add <laughs> is talk about. Why the, why can't we just find a way to bring each other together? We all want happiness. And there's so much hatred. And on the Internet, it is astonishing to me, the vitriol that I encounter. And I try not to read it late at night. I don't want it in my dreams. Um, so would you talk a little bit about reconciling the gap in, in general to begin with, if you don't mind?
0: Yes, Um we do need some reconciliation in this world. And it's not that simple as just to say, I think David, that we all want these the same or this, you know, peace or harmony. Um, Wanting something and knowing how to get it is, it may not be totally the same. And then everybody may or may not want the same things or in the same amount or quality or kind, um, But I think that it's very important to work on slowing down a little bit, if that's the right term, to like reflect a little more, to look a little deeper and see if there really is a chasm or a gap between me and you or or oneself and others or us and them, if you want to put it further out there into society or us and other societies or groups. And maybe we'll see that they're not very different than us. Just like when we travel, we have a great broadening experience i find as we see other people so much like us trying to take care of and flourish their families and their homes and their homelands and their neighborhoods and the earth around them and so on and the animals and pets and um because there's really not a Grand Canyon or a big chasm between us, most of us. Just the the extremist voices, and the word extreme is already in, in there. The extremist voices are shouting from opposite poles of the spectrum. But most of the spectrum is very, very interwoven, interdependent, interconnected, and interjoined. And I'd like to hear a little bit more from the moderates and from the rest of the spectrum, not just the extreme voices with their loud bullhorns, whether it's partisan politics in Washington or religious extremists and, 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 and jihadists and so on. And uh, not just to put it elsewhere in another country or another religion, but uh, we have our extremists in our own religions here in the West as well. And uh, I think it's very important today to try to cultivate some kind of empathy, feeling what others feel, trying to see through their eyes where they're coming from and then consider that we might feel similarly if we were coming from that place. That might take a little slowing down or a little enhanced attention and intention to be able to feel our way into that, to listen better and to sense our interbeing, our inextricable interwovenness. I think that is a very vital cord or weft that the warp and woof can really depend on and be straightened by this weft of interbeing. And um there there really is not such a big gap. The Americans used to be such Americans used to be such isolationists before World War One and even before World War Two. But how can we be that way now in the year two thousand and thirteen when the world has shrunk so much and we're so interdependent and interconnected?
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I wanna get
2: down to one to a very human level though, individual human level, uh in terms of the way that we respond, and you know we, we just did something with a, a friend, another podcast, uh, Danny Goldberg, actually, and and we t- he's really um, very, very uh, knowledgeable about politically uh, what's going on. He's been involved for many years. so you know, we talked about uh, David, give that example again. Well
1: da- uh, sorry, da- uh, Danny quoted from Martin Luther King's speech, "The Empire of Eternity." And um, uh, that that King himself admitted that he was in in, in, in in time, he was a human being, he erred, he was very human, but that he aspired to the empire of eternity. And he managed to blend in his speeches and his teachings, you know, the very personal and and the infinite and the eternal. Which and, and Danny talked about that as being an inspiration just as much now as 50 years ago when civil rights basically yes. was passed. And yes.
0: Actually, I'd like, to, I'd like to get your
1: feeling about, about him, about King. It would be interesting to us, I think.
0: Well, I'm a big fan, and um, I'm very interested in this issue of eternity and finding, experiencing eternity right here in time. Of course, as a Buddhist meditator, we're very much focused on keeping our mind or our, our attention in the day in the, and in the moment, and that's where you find eternity, and then you're not tied to space and time in a linear fashion. Mm -hmm. And modern physics, it seems to be bearing that out with the quantum theories and the Higgs boson particle and dark matter and all how things are not as local as they seem to be, but simultaneously um, everywhere or or otherwhere. So I find like with time, if if I can be very much in the moment or just listening to what you're saying or what Martin Luther King is saying, then um, it's just like, tuning forks, attuning in this moment today, not across 50 years of time, where him being, let's say, dead and me being alive. And uh, I think that's very important for each of us and all of us to not be so time and space bound or or self-limiting with those kind of concepts. And to think eternity will come later after we die is a pretty illusion. But we Buddhists say, if you're not here now, you won't be there then. Mm -hmm. So we practice Mm -hmm. the nowness, you know, nowness awareness is said in Tibetan to be the Buddha within, and that's an awesome thought. I uh, thought Ram Dass That's where eternity that. is. Ramdas said, be here now. Didn't he? The, the ancient Tibetan text said, um, nowness awareness is the authentic, unfabricated Buddha within. So that's, you know, he, this is a he timeless, evergreen message.
2: All of this time, we thought he invented this, <laughs> and he took it from an old Tibetan text. I know. Tibetan He's text. a
0: plagiarist, like Shakespeare and, and, and so many. <laughs>
2: And us, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Riding
0: on his large peacock coattails. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Uh, Listen, you guys have both gone off into a very... um, into higher consciousness related to this in a way that I guess I'm... I'm stuck, okay? (laughs) you, You need to help me. When I... And, David, what I was trying to ask you was that thing you read about the guy went up to Obama and said, I don't like you. Yeah, or but but, but it
1: he? was proven now, I think, that he actually didn't, oh, that, okay. didn't say that. But what what it was reported was in the meeting between the congressional Republicans and Obama, it was reported that one of them just said, I just can't look at you. Later, it was disputed. I think there may be some truth. But the fact that he said that, the president of the United States, a mild-minded man, whatever we think about him, a gentle, gracious man, and said, I, you know— but that could, it could have happened, right? So. Yeah, it
2: doesn't matter though. That's not mm-hmm. the point. Could have been anything. This Ted Cruz said, or acted like during that whole thing that was going on before the funding of the budget, right? Whatever it is, it can be. It can be uh, Boehner and something he says. It can, you know, or it can be whatever from the Tea Party or the cr- really crazy. La- whatever it is, there's always a trigger. Okay, I'm experiencing a trigger where I'm immediately polarized and discounting them in any way uh, except for the fact that, uh, you know, they should disappear. So, Lama, give us a, a, you know, I mean, we're talking about in the moment flash, okay, dealing with that and where you completely, you actually, you know, remember Maharaji said, be ang- you can be angry at people, but don't throw them out of your heart.
0: Yes, that's a beautiful saying, and it's always stayed with me, Raghu. Hmm. Um, The question for me is always how. And um, I think that awareness practice helps us be kind of have more, like, let's say, mindful reactivity management. So we can think before (laughs) we react, so we can respond more intentionally and principally, so we don't just retaliate in kind. So some people say breathe or, or, you know, count to 10 or think before you act. And this is all good, but it takes practice. Uh, I think it's very important to be that present, that intentioned, that principled, that you can bring that to the most difficult interactions. Um, first, I, I want to say a couple of things. One is they are not going to go away because as long as there's a me or an us, there's a them. The Tea Party... Bainer, you know, whatever your men are at the moment, mm-hmm. the, the they doesn't go away as long as we're in this world of form or this dualistic world, as long as we're a separate ego being. But that's not the problem. The problem is how do we relate to they? Do we treat everything as our, like, mystic consort, like um, the dance with it, embrace it, mm-hmm. welcome it? Well, we can't stand to see it as in your little teaching tale whether it was true or not. It's a good teaching tale. So the they doesn't go away unless we uh, thin the veil or the we-ness a little bit, the the I-ness a little bit. Mm. And then the struggle uh, just continues. But I think that it's not that hard, really, if we commit ourselves to this, because what's the alternative To, to blow up the whole planet or to have just totally impacted, entrenched paralyzed politics and go bankrupt or whatever other, you know, things can happen. Um, I'm very concerned about that. But I do think that a shift in consciousness is the or one of the best answers. And um, economics and and sociopolitical system change and all are very necessary. But a shift in consciousness is also very necessary as kind of the inner complement to those outer uh, changes, like systemic change. And, and so forth. And then we can stand seeing even what we don't like because we can embrace it just simply as what we don't like. Mm, and we have a bigger it. mind. If we, if we knew everything about where they're coming from, we might think very differently about what they're saying.
2: Mm. Talk about uh, awareness just a little bit. On the most practical level, how to really utilize that a moment-to-moment moment during one's day, not in a, an, yeah, a practice right. or a special anything.
0: Yes. No, uh, the real work or the real practice, not a formal meditation practice. The real practice, I think, Raghu, is the moment-to-moment attention, awareness, attention, intention, paying attention, being present, whatever you want to call it, showing up. Think about it. If you're not there for your kids, what the result is. Being an absentee parent, or not listening to them, or them feeling diminished and like they don't count and they're not seen. So, uh, you have kids, you know how that goes. And we all have, have seen this. So, it's, it's from my point of view, and admittedly, this is a Buddhist point of view. Now, I'm not talking about love or following a divine will or or, or selfless service. I'm talking about awareness, practice, cultivation, moment to moment, being present. The buzzword today is mindfulness, mindful awareness. Mindful, which I'll define here as the opposite of mindless. And we can all understand the downsides of being mindless while we go about our, our day. So mindful, attentive, present, um, fully engaged, uh, not ignoring or in denial or speeding through things to get to the real thing later. This is the thing. This is the real thing, if you must Otherwise, we, should be, we could be doing something else. So I think that bringing the light of awareness, I'm, start, I'm starting to call it illuminosity. It's not just a light, like <laughs> luminosity, but it illumines at the same time. It's like a headlight. It's a illuminosity. Bringing illuminosity to bear on every mini moment is my answer. That's what aware, awareness really is, the, the panacean awareness that illumines everything. And then things become much clearer. When I'm clearer, everything becomes clearer. The world doesn't even have to change for me. Things become clearer, and then I make better choices. I do better. I have better relations, and so on. I hope that's practical enough for you.
2: Yeah, no, that uh, is—what I love is your term here. What was it? Mindful reactivity what?
0: mindful reactivity management rather than saying mindful anger management i'm broadening it out mindful reactivity management
2: this is a this is a, a whole seminar series that you need to start giving be. and we should all be part of okay it could be that's a great i also uh, want term. to
0: highlight the term that i made up luminosity, luminosity. because it's awareness is is it's not just a light it's it's like a headlight it illumines
2: right that's
0: beautiful. It's piercing. It's 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 it, it, it illumines the way before us.
2: Beautiful awareness it as luminosity. Mm.
0: It saves us from a lot of mishaps and and bad surprises.
2: Yeah, we've had some bad surprises.
0: <laughs> yes, we all have.
1: Yes, David. Yeah, well, I mean. Illuminosity. I like that. I'm going to use that forever. Illuminosity. Yeah, Illuminosity. It's not the Illuminati, those Duncan Trussell fans that that's conspiracy No, let's not
0: get Maybe it's it's a good bestseller. (laughs) Now we're talking.
1: Yeah, I wanted to go a little bit back to the political thing, because obviously we're just talking about the present and one's immediate personal life, including children, relations, friends, enemies. Uh, Eric Cantor, who's the um, majority whip in the House, and, uh, who, who my uh, wife went to the
2: prom with. Get out of here. And danced with. Amazing. That is funny. Well, no, it's a horror. It's not well, funny. Every time I see him, I said, you actually were friends with this? See, that's <laughs> what I'm
1: talking about, Lama. She had a more advanced idea, I guess. But I was bringing him up because he's the one responsible for this huge cut. Uh, in food stamps, and uh, yes. uh, Robert Kennedy and Robert Dole, a Republican, and Thomas Foley were the people that actually made the food stamp program happen. It reduced uh, infant and child uh, starvation and poverty by 90% over a period of 10 years, and now um, it has, in fact, been cut, and it is going to affect people. How can we bring this... Um, uh, this reconciliation gap together whereby someone like me who isn't particularly affected by food stamps but I feel for people how can I not how can I transmute my anger and disgust at someone taking away uh, from uh, you know yeah, the, the malheureux malheureux in the society how do you reconcile how do you get how do you become activist how do you stay against this which is <laughs> unjust and cruel and maintain your cool there's a little poem for
0: you mm. I don't know if we have to maintain our cool, but like um, Ragu was quoting our guru, you don't have to throw them out of your heart, but you can still uh, you, you can still speak out very strongly in, in various ways about this. What seems to me really a, hypocr- a hypocritical crime in a way. It's a shame cutting off the services to the poorest people rather than uh, increasing taxes at the other high end. Or, you know, other other means, the defense spending, or whatever it is, the the really big expenses in our trillions-of-dollar budget, and cutting out the services to the poorest people. You know, it's like the health insurance problem is such an intractable problem that we still haven't solved, while well, the rest of the first world can't believe that we don't provide health insurance for everybody, that we have 50 million people without health insurance in America, Well, the whole world thinks America is rich and successful. It's a crime. So I I don't know how cool we have to maintain. We can be equanimous and and detached, but also be very uh, strong in our voices and actions about that. And I do think that um, we have to call out some of the causes of it, which is greed. You know, there's enough for everybody's need, but not everybody's greed, as Mahatma Gandhi said. And a lot of this is greed and selfishness, I believe, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I think it's important to talk about that. It's not just about political persuasion. It's about self-interest, and this is a real problem. And occasionally I hear somebody say how America is an oligarchy. We don't hear that enough. And let me go further in an obnoxious way. Not enough people know what that word means, but America is an oligarchy. It's run by the rich and the lobbyists have a lot to say about this and the Mm -hmm. large corporations that they represent. As anybody who knows about Washington, D.C. politics will tell you, it's not the parties, the two parties that run it. Mm -hmm. It's the wealthy corporations and lobbyists' interests. So in an oligarchy, that's what you get. And I think that we don't hear enough about this. And, of course, the politicians and people who want to be popular or or get elected um, have a very hard time talking about this, even about the level of health care and food stamps and so forth, not to mention larger things, the the, the issues we have.
2: Well, absolutely. There's even a, a thing going around the net. I mean, I got a letter saying, you know, uh, having to do, I think Warren Buffett was actually behind it, if that's possible. Certainly his name was mentioned. And, you know, term limits for the people in Congress, uh, get your health care the way everybody else does, et cetera, et cetera. And they, of course, will not go anywhere near that. And uh, that is the essential nature of, of, as you say, this oligarchy is, That is, and, and it's self-interest. Or as in your tradition, your tradition, our tradition, um, it's uh, self-cherishing?
0: Yes, uh, self-cherishing, selfishness to put it in English. Yeah, and uh, a little selfishness is fine. I like
2: self cherishing even better because that word yeah. cherish, where you just right. you're you're just so engaged with yourself and and just yes. absolutely like the you know um, hungry ghost realm kind of thing you know, and yes. it's never enough. Uh, so
0: verging verging on obsessed.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Well, <clears throat> uh, sometimes I say that the uh, main religion in the world is control freakism but today i'm <laughs> going to say that the main the main mantra in the world is what about me yeah whatever yeah. happens that's like so many people's first reaction what about me how does that affect me or us what about yeah. me what's and in it, it for me and and, and that, it, that's very that's that's okay at the survival level of the very lower chakras you know the amphibian brain and all that but if we're going to come up the tree of consciousness and the chakras and the sephiroth and so on. To the heart and to the vision and to creativity, as well as con- not just conditioning, but also creativity and vision and sharing and oneness, just going up the tree of consciousness, the chakras. Then we really have to have some other mantras, not just "What about me?"
2: It, that "What about the, me?" myself and I. What about me? Though is pretty insidious. It's it's at the core, of course. As you come in crying into this world, is is yes. is it, and it is not nothing. To uh, to transmute that it is a, you know a life's purpose obviously um, it's a
0: life's work yeah. absolutely but it's 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 uh, I don't want to say it's the only work that word comes to mind it's the great work it's the noble work it's a it's a major of major significance yeah absolutely
1: L- let me um let me quote the last line from this um, thing you wrote uh, which is reconciling the gap and then I'd like you to comment on your own words it's fabulous. When we learn to see through others' eyes, and that they want and need more or less the same as we do, things start to look different, and we can live and embody the diamond rule of perceiving the light in everyone and everything, every moment. This is not a belief, but a training and a cultivation, a way of life I myself try to implement. Let's talk a little bit about this training and cultivation, Sorry, it Yes, Um
0: this diamond rule, or what we call in Tibetan Daknang, a sacred outlook, pure perception, sacramental vision. It's something we practice. So uh, you used the example before, David. If somebody said to the president, "I can't stand seeing you," or "I can't look at you," or something. This is kind of the opposite, where we we find some object, person, or higher power that we love. That's like our main, you know, superhero, like God, Jesus, our child, our beloved, whatever. And try to spread that a little bit, iron that great peak of admiration and, and veneration and love, spread it out a little more to others so that we start to see that same light, that luminosity in others. Of course, it's hard just to spread that to everyone, including one's enemies. And I'll just drop a few names, you know, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, whoever, but um, Idi Amin, but uh, gradually. Widening the circle of our loving from just our one or two beloved children, mate, grandmother, pet, uh, here you know, higher power, hero, the Dalai Lama, whoever you, you you venerate, Jesus, you know, wonderful icons. But the point is to see the the Christus, the light, the Jesus heart in everyone and everything, so we can treat them as we would be treated. So. Trying to widen the circle of our heart, from one or two to three to several. Ragvindra, Raghu mentioned it when we were at our Guru's ashram. How Dr. Larry so articulately said it, and I'm just going to repeat it again. It, it, it deserves repetition. He, our Guru, loved us, loved me unconditionally. But the amazing thing was, when I was there, I loved everyone else unconditionally too. That's the direction we're talking about. So trying to take that that love, that veneration, that patience and forbearance, and applying it to the people who we may or may not agree with. Admittedly, it's hard to do it with your enemies or your political adversaries and critics. You mentioned um Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, and, and, and John Boehner, and so on. Mm. You know, there could be worse in history or in this world, genociders and others we could pick on, <laughs> bogeymen and women probably. But um, just to at least start spreading it out to our neighbor or to our less favorite you know, relative and, and, and ironing it out into every part of our life and seeing the less favorite relative is also lonely and anxious and wants to be belong at the family holiday table and always ends up being at the corner or pushed out or mm-hmm. ignored. I, I don't know, you know, whatever example you want to give. So we start to iron out this extreme partiality that begins with self-cherishing and self-obsession. And then we fixate it on somebody like Prince or Princess Charming is a good place to start for our purposes. That's fine. But uh, what about seeing that every girl child is a princess and every boy child is a prince? Then we'd have quite a different upbringing and education system and adult world. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Couldn't agree more. So that's did...
0: the diamond rule. That's the diamond rule. Treating everybody like a prince or a princess, not spoiling them, but giving them absolutely the best, not to mention just food stamps or basic health care, but the best.
2: That, that's what the... now,
0: That may or may not be practical, but— um, the greatest minds of the world have spent a lot of effort on trying to find better ways to do that, whether it's called mm-hmm. democracy or Marxism or, uh, you know, other other things.
2: How about the Sat uh, Still satyuga. working on that. The Sat Yuga is, is a—this um, is, you know, what we should be looking for next yes. because in the right. Sat Yuga, apparently— Everybody loved each other. Everybody had a job. Everyone loved the king. It was, of course, Ram who was God that incarnated as a king. So it was all that—that—that's what we're looking for, the Sat Yuga.
0: Well, if we made God the king of our lives, then maybe we could live in the Sat Yuga now. Yes, but and, uh, that's kind of up to each of us. I don't know that it's democracy rule. I don't think we have to get 51 percent of the electoral votes to agree with us. If we make God or our higher power the, the, the sovereign king, queen, or sovereign yeah. of our lives, then maybe we'd, we'd participate more in the Sat Yuga, in the, in the time of truth, love, and equality. That's what I would advocate for, not and, waiting.
2: Yes, and you speak of it a lot these days, about, um, about allowing enlightenment to be the present moment. Maybe talk a little bit about that.
0: Yes, um, it's very hard to get away from this, although it's tempting, but um, it, it seems so simple or so uh, bare in a way, uh, rather than promises of heaven or, let's exaggerate, 70 virgins in heaven and so on. But uh, that's, I'm looking kind of in the other direction and trying to see, you know, the heaven and the wild flower, as the poet called it. Heaven in the world, the sand, and, and in a wild flower, and um, in my child's eyes, in my pet's eyes. And I'm a dog person, so I'm trying to spread out my love to cats. It's a challenge.
1: <laughs> it's true. What's On the last podcast, cats? you made a, you, you made says, a derogatory comment about cats. And being a cat lover, I thought, oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh.
0: But I mean, everybody's like that. How's they it like working for you? One, and they don't like the other of something. Yeah, right. You know, whatever it is, like Woody Allen, we all, in this discussion, I think we'd all say we love nature, but Woody Allen doesn't say that. He says, I am a two with nature. (laughs) He's allowed to not love nature and feel apart from it. Of course, nobody's apart from it, but you know. So I think just widening the circle of our loving to include all, that's very important. And the only place we can do that, well, the only place we can ever be really is in the present moment. That's why, that's where we can, we live at the juncture of time and eternity, so we really can't be anywhere else. If we're thinking about the future, we're doing it in the present moment. If we're recalling the past, we're doing it in the present moment. So it's good to come back to ourselves and be fully inhabiting the reality here, and then we have a lot better sense of past and, and present and future causation and w- direction and where we want to go, and uh, I, I feel a lot will be a lot more masterful rather than victimized by outer conditions and circumstances. We'll have our hands much more firmly on the steering wheel of our karma and our lives.
2: I'm going um, to go sideways here, Dave. I don't know. I mean, because you studied Surya Das's uh, blog, yeah. yes. right? I think so you may have I more th- to say about it, but...
1: I think it's the least we can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: He's a good man, Lama Ji. He is. <laughs> I want to ask you about, I've always been fascinated because it's, it's something I've never done before. And uh, Surya Das did three years in meditative retreat in France many years ago. And I don't know how many times I've said to myself, you know, this is just the complications that I have created in my life over time through (laughs) business and God knows what, family, all of it. I would really like to do what Lama did, period. You know, I got to do that. So I want to hear from you. And I've actually gone in and done extraordinarily brief glimpses of it, uh, going to India and spending some time in retreat. Um, but you've
0: done you've done let's not diminish it. you've done serious uh, for our our listeners point of view ragu you've done serious intensive traditional silent vegetarian celibate ashram retreats of weeks and perhaps months and that's enough and more than enough i want to know about the weekend
2: the three years though syria does so three years i want you to talk about Give me the extremes of... I'm a slow uh, learner, slow learner, <laughs> recidivist. Give me, give me, give me some, ex- <laughs> just give me an experience of, you know, maybe when you were first there and you went into this and, and just started to, you know, going through any dark night of the soul, some, you know, what happened?
0: Everything happens uh, over three years, three months and three days. That's the traditional length of Tibetan of uh, Adriana, Tibetan Buddhist Lama training retreat. So it's very it's monastic, it's cloistered. There's no weekends. You don't have a bed. You sit in a meditation seat or a box. You sit up no at night. No bed. Wait, no bed. You sit. You sit up at night, and lean against the wall, and do like clear light yoga and dream yoga and breathing and stuff. And uh, you know it's kind of austere. It's a monastic meditation retreat like they used to do in Tibet. Do you have a teacher available there, or sky? Yes yes? Well, you do in a group usually, at least the first time, so you get teaching and instruction, and you have daily chants and prayers morning and night together, and, some, and you have group meals, but silent. silent meals. Mm. So it's a cloister meditation. It's like, you know, you've been to Guenca's inside garden yep. courses. It's like that for a long time.: <laughs> and, and there's no- a teaching once a day.
2: And no no communicating with other people, no socializing, no nothing, right?
0: There's a li- in three years, there's a little more than in a 10-day uh-huh. insight meditation course, uh-huh. of course. Right. Three years. You know, you might be sick sometime or, you know, whatever. But
2: um, Did you ever say, what in the fuck?
0: Of course. I no, I'm going to tell you. So my Tibetan guru, Kalu Rinpoche of the Kagyu school, was very much advocating and exhorting us students in the 60s and 70s, to go through this kind of Lama training, and he's the first one that organized it for Westerners, and it couldn't happen in the Himalayas, so they happened it in France, starting in 76, and I was in the first one of the Nyingma Zogchen traditions, started in 80. Hmm. So it was very, you know, I was, like, excited to do it, and I was prepared. I'd been in India with him and my gurus and learned some Tibetan in the 70s and done a lot of practice. I was happy to do it, and I was single, Raghu. I think you were married and had one or two children at that time. Yes. And your horse farm and what other things, what you called complications or Zorba the Greek called the entire outrageous spectacle or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you were living, you know, you had a spiritual marriage and a spiritual commune there and the farm, et cetera. It was beautiful. Anyway, so I was in the monastic way for eight or nine years in that monastery, cloister, And when I first went into the three-year retreat, it was like, I really couldn't, I was 30 years old in 1980. I couldn't imagine the end of it. I mean, rationally, I knew that after three and a half years we were going to come out if we were alive, you know I mean, it wasn't like uh, going underground in a hole in a submarine, it was like you know somewhat you lowest year with other people that looked like you and me more or less. <laughs> it wasn't a war, it wasn't out of space, right but um I couldn't imagine the end of it. It seemed so long. It was like when you go to college, you know. You know, before you are a freshman, you don't really know that there's any end to that four years or what you're going to do afterwards. So, but I was very surrendered, even excited to do it. And then, you know, after the honeymoon of a few months of practice and being really gung-ho, and then you start to wonder, oh my God, what did I get myself into? And then it's not always so easy. And then, you know, the more your ego or your habits get squeezed, the more it wants to jump away like a wet bar of soap when you squeeze it. So... You know, I had to go through various stages of commitment, maybe like in any other relationship or marriage. You know, when the hard times come, then your commitment gets tested. So that was good, and it drove me deeper, and I had to find refuge or find what I was looking for inside myself, not just go somewhere else and try something else. That Mm -hmm. was very helpful, productive, let's say, Mm -hmm. that I found my center and what I was looking for. We call them Buddhism refuge. In myself, in my practice, in the moment, in meditation, in, in the mind, in the heart, not whether the teacher was there or not, or whether I could go somewhere else or find a new girlfriend or go to a different ashram or, or, or try some other thing. and that that drove me deeper, and then you get kind of, you become more independent and even autonomous. Within independence, you become more autonomous and more free, less dependent on outer circumstances and conditions, more carrying one's own atmosphere with oneself, as it were, if you can put it in words. Mm. So that was very, very helpful. And then, of course, you have your ups and downs. Um, My guru, Karmapa, died when I was in that retreat. That was sad. He was in... And they cremated him in Sikkim and all, and I couldn't go. But then he visited me almost every night in dreams, so I saw him all the time in my box, in my meditation box. So uh, visiting in dreams was even better than, than going once for a week to India and coming back with amoebic dysentery.
1: <laughs> <Ouch>.
0: <laughs> and then the inner karma guru never dies, so you you, you start to find it that way. Right. So that was very helpful, and I liked it so much that after that first... Three-year, three-month retreat, which took three years and eight months waiting for our guru to come from the Himalayas to complete it and close it, open the door, let's say. Then I did it again with some of those friends there in France, in southern France, in the Dordogne Valley, near the ancient caves of Lascaux. So I did it again because I wanted to practice more and find out what, what this is all about, really get to the bottom of it. I don't know. It was the eighties. I, I was young and uh, naive and I didn't have a family and a career and other things. So it wasn't that hard. Um, and um, now the time seems a little more speeded up. And with the grid, it's hard for people to get away for a vacation, even and be off the grid. But I was off the grid for three and a half years, mm. but it wasn't that hard. It was a little hard. You know, my grandmother died. And I didn't come for the funeral. and My parents d- oh. were pissed. But mm, yeah. so it, was, it was really worthwhile to commit myself to that and to go through it and to find out that I re- really, as they say, everything we seek is within. But that doesn't just mean m- within me, myself, and I. It just means if we look deeper, it's ever always available and accessible. It's given. It's a miracle we could be grateful for. It's gorgeous, the, the within, the deepest, mm. the highest, the deepest. And uh, I don't think we hear enough about that today in our post, post-modern, cynical, scientistic age. Mm. It is possible. If I could do it, you could do it. Anybody can do it. I'm not the Dalai Lama. My father wasn't a, a, a rabbi from you know the old country. <laughs> Nothing like that. I'm just a three-sport jock from Long Island.
2: <laughs> wow. uh, let me I'm gonna uh, just I don't know why this this come into my head um but since you straddle two traditions now I know you know all your formative years are certainly obviously as you just said involved with Tibetan Buddhism but you know Maharaji is still involved in your life I know that and um how do we translate the concept that we have of grace in bhakti yoga into Tibetan Buddhism?
0: Um, th- Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, has the concept of guru yoga, of blessings, of transmission, of guru lila, that everything arises, the guru's lila. So it's not that different. And pure Buddhist, purest Buddhists would probably say that that was a Hindu influence in Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. But it's certainly there in, in that in some parts of Buddhism. The guru, uh, yoga, bhakti part. And also, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's the part of non-dual bhakti. So that's also a very interesting aspect.
2: Mm. Talk about
0: that. That is interesting. Well, usually we think of, uh, in general, bhakti as a dualistic path in the sense that there's the the higher being, the god, the goddess, and then there's the Atma or the self. But there's a recognition here that that Brahma, Guru, and Atma are one and the same. I think that probably comes from the Vedas or Upanishads. Mm-hmm. So in the we could talk about non-dual Bhakti, like... Remote. Like finding, uh, realizing that primordial oneness, not spending many many lifetimes approaching oneness.
2: Well, m- in my experience, like, actually- like
0: Hanuman never becomes Ram, but he is a god. So there's that side. If you want to exaggerate, the non-dual side, but he never does become Ram. He is always in the 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 server position not that that's necessarily inferior
2: didn't i mean wouldn't you say neem karoli baba sitting in that presence uh, uh, very much was uh, a non duality or yes you know that's
0: the, why that's why i why i get this idea I, I think he he played with the dualities but he didn't come from duality he was exactly he was the oneness and he saw it as oneness and he treated everything as 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 it you he know, didn't talk about how long it would take. There was no hurry. He had time for everyone. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying. It wasn't time or space bound He wasn't talking about many lifetimes. or getting a better rebirth as we see in a lot of the dualistic bhakti teachings let's say hmm. so there is room for that in the bhakti in the devotional bhakti tradition
2: well i I also think that uh i mean you're you're obviously. You know, the biggest example, but those people that were with him back then, physically with him and others after and beyond, uh, took a lot, uh, were very involved in in Buddhist practice and in particular Tibetan teachings. And many of us still. um, Yes. I I was going to just tell you, by the way, I I saw his holiness in Atlanta a few weeks ago and it was about secular ethics was a topic. Uh And he mm-hmm. was working, you know, at the Emory there, and he's got monks that are, you know, part of the program, and so on, you know, related to science, you know, merging science and spirituality. And uh, uh, we were, you were just talking before about the fact. Uh, that this has to be uh, an in uh, done on an individual basis. You you know get yourself straight, and and yes. then things can start to change. Well, he said, right. and this was in the you know in the midst of the whole thing at con- you know with the president <laughs> and in Congress, and not you know and the stonewalling and the blackmailing to not finance the budget unless they changed Obamacare, and he said. You know, we have so much, so many problems on this planet, obviously environmental and, uh, you know, e- economy and disparity and us and them just, you know, he didn't say it quite, us and them. Um, and, and he said no government can fix any of it. And n- not, the, not the Congress. They're not going to fix anything. Neither is the president going to fix anything. It is up to each one of us to do our, you know, self inquiry and and get ourselves together. I mean, however, he said it in the moment that, the, and that yes, that was it, a, that's the message. There, you know,
0: isn't that a wonderful message for this era, this greatly flattening out, you know, era of the Occupy movement and not just depending on the one percent, that everybody can and and must do this and participate, and it's not that hard. Hmm. It's not that hard. Admittedly. There's plenty of people who are—you know, there's, a I suppose, a billion people who are starving today in this planet. It's hard to talk about them having a spiritual renaissance while they're starving for food and their kids are. But in general, it's up to each of us and all of us together, and no one can do it alone. But no one's exempt from participating. And it's not going to be the Dalai Lama or president or Congress either. I mean, that everybody is— has to do their part, and I think that's very much in the spirit of the coming times. How that translates and whether that works out or not remains to be seen, but I do think we need to keep echoing that clarion call. It's very clear, and not to look elsewhere for the answers. It's very congruent with the spiritual message. Not to look elsewhere for the answers, but to become the answer, as Gandhi said, and be the changes we want to see in the world and um, it's up to each of us and all of us each of us you know to join together and all of us to do that also I know he's been very 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 much saying prayer and meditation is great, but we also have to take positive practical uh, social action, and I think that's important, of course, if we never heard of contemplative practices in our religious upbringing or atheist upbringing, then it's good to bring those in. But if that's all Westerners are interested in and not the other part, that would also be out of balance. Mm. Good deeds and social action and, and, and systemic change and altruism and compassion and action is so necessary today, especially in the endangered world, as you mentioned, the environment and other issues that we have that we have to face as a group. I mean, the pollution that over China and some of these places, if we don't deal with that, we're all going to be in big trouble. If we keep producing fossil fuel cars, we're all going to be in big trouble with the population explosion, because uh, this is not something that you or I can change just by driving a Prius or an electric car. We need to uh, think a little bit deeper about this. And maybe it means bringing some of this consciousness to China, not just materialistic 1950s consciousness, success consciousness. Maybe we need to speed up bringing this kind of global consciousness to China, not just capitalism, which is so new and exciting to them all of a sudden, before it's too late. Because they're one and a half billion people people are going to start tipping the balance on this planet, and they already are and the ozone layer, and the global warming, and the rising seas. And if we look at maps, then, well, there's a lot to think about there. So blackmail and uh, not keeping our agreements in Congress is pretty shameful, considering the bigger issues that this planet and society faces. Mm.
2: Yeah, there's a high level of ignorance. Uh, David actually talks, and we talked about this
1: uh, <laughs> Speaking yesterday. of the ignorance, yeah. not
2: was not thinking anything but wisdom coming from you which was in and it's we see and david talks about it because you know we have many uh people who uh listen to this podcast 20s and 30s millennial generation they call them i think dave knows and um but we and, and I myself have gotten a lot of input in my other hat uh, with the this foundation that we have. And uh, there are so many people coming to the table wanting to help, wanting to be part of helping transform and and just you even just read about you know uh, younger people taking action in a way and, and David uh, makes the good point that in a way that we really didn't in the late 60s, early 70s, because we were so caught, uh, I mean, I'm being very general, and and I think David would probably agree, you know, it's not a, we don't have it down to a science, science, but certainly we were not activists, Uh, although there were many activists, they were not, there was a dividing line between being an activist and being uh, interested in Eastern spirituality and working on yourself and blah, blah, blah. Uh, now there, these you know, that generation is working on themselves and is doing something. So uh, we, there, we, well, is they some have
1: hope. they have interconnectivity that we didn't have. I mean, the the internet, and Facebook, it's Twitter, etc. Even though this it's trivialized a lot, it is amazingly powerful when it comes to bringing people together against uh, a Monsanto, against a Fukushima lie, against all this horrific stuff that happens. What, what I love about it, Lama, is this. That, you know, if you're 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, whatever now, and you see the way the world is and, and all of the, the problems, I think it's remarkable that you can still get off the floor and say, okay, I'm going to that march, be it Occupy, whatever it is. I'm going to sign that thing. And it isn't trivial because I know a lot of young people who are just 24-7 on this. And, they're, and also, they're not full of rage. Yeah, Rage Against the Machine it was a real band and it was a real attitude. But most people, I think of that age group, and I hope I'm not sounding patronizing, are actively, at least the ones that come on my feed on Facebook, are very actively involved in doing something. And frequently their posts end with, don't just read this, do what I'm I'm suggesting, please do it now, go to this, do that, sign that, whatever. I do not think that this is uh, purely nominal. I think it is a very beautiful stream in, in, in adversity you know, in real perceived adversity by those who are actually quite middle class and doing all right. But they can see now, they can see what has been happening across the planet. And I think that's a huge, huge, beautiful thing.
0: I think that's the power of the young people, David, that they haven't got jaded or burnt out or bitter, I don't want to say yet, and that they have this... um, Natural optimism or hope, or they don't know about any limits. And we were the same way in the '60s with uh, you know, cultural change. And um, I really think we have to we have to help them, back them, and also get out of their way. And um, much as we may wonder what the what's going on with social media and things like that, that's how they do it, and it's happening. I just like to try to inject a little more. A spiritual media into the social media with some substance or something, and, and keep alive those strands of the whole brocade. And uh, I think that the young people, you know, they, they have so much hope and optimism. I know so many kids, uh, kids means like under 25 or 30 to me now, who have um, been volunteering or interning in Kenya and Rwanda and Nicaragua and You know, all these places, after college or for a year or a semester during college, it's fantastic. And they get around so much easier today, and they're still in touch with home uh, much easier. And um, it's it's a very, in in one way, integrated. In another way, I think there might be a certain loss of things like solitude or independence. Mm -hmm. But um, every generation has their their challenges and their assets. And I think that... uh, the, the young people today are probably way ahead of uh, more evolved than us and finding their way. And I, I'm very uh, irrationally optimistic about that. Hmm.
2: Hmm. Well, we're coming to the uh, end of our podcast, mindrollingpodcast.com. That's where you go. Dave writes great blogs over there and puts up beautiful, we did this thing, Surya Das, I think you'll appreciate it. We did, a podcast a little earlier in the fall with uh, uh, Lama Tsultram and uh, Alione And she did uh, a... Well, Dave, you explain. A well, chode practice. Right? She, yeah,
1: she did the chode practice of five steps, the initial five steps for feeding your demons meditation. And she did it with, a, with Ragu and I. And, and so we cut it out, actually. It's 20 minutes and put it on again. So you know, it's
2: going it, viral now. Yeah, people are on c- social catching media. hold of it, Okay. Right. Isn't Good. that something? And that I mean,
1: something. you know, I'll tell you, <laughs> that's it was... the power of it. Yeah, oh, that's I thought we did the meditation. And it, and I tell you, since that time, yeah. it's been. I've gone back to it. I have it on my Kindle. I have it on my everything. And occasionally, somewhere on a subway, somewhere, I look at it well, and I go, I've forgotten this again. I'll do it again. Where is the f- demon? What does the demon look like? What does the demon need? How can I help the demon? And therefore, that deepest part of myself that is discontented, it works. It's amazing. So, you know, we like to have you llamas on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what can and, I say? And, and mm-hmm. In fact, wait,
2: before we go anywhere, uh, Lama. How We have a few minutes left. How about uh, just lead us in a, in a, talk us through a, a, a little a, a meditation. We won't restrict you to any topic.
0: Okay. I think I'm just going to chant something, and that way there won't be any English words attached to it, and you could just let it seep uh, into you and through you. Perfect. And- Do Sanje good watch the so she Thank you. May the, may the blossoming spiritual consciousness continue to evolve. May all obstacles be removed from the path and stumbling blocks become stepping stones and may all our sterling compassionate aspirations be fulfilled so that we may all together complete the spiritual journey for a better future to be possible the future which begins now Homage, homage to the Buddha Homage to the Buddha in your seat. Don't overlook her. Thank yeah. you. God bless. Buddha bless.
2: Thank you, Lama Suridas. Um, What's the uh, website if people want more info and get your books and all that? Of course, I'm
0: www.surya.org. That's S-U-R-Y-A, Surya.org. You'll find my teaching schedule, books. I also have Twitter and Facebook feeds, etc., cetera, so, and weekly words of wisdom. Send that. So um, let's do this thing together for the benefit of all and for fun, deep fun.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us again, Yeah. Suridas, and uh, we, we're going to see you again uh, sooner than later because uh, we love hanging with you.
1: Absolutely.
2: I look Thank
0: forward you. to it. I love this mind-rolling tradition.
2: See you later. Bye bye.
0: Love to you both. Bye bye.